Well, good morning. My name is Daniel, and again, and I just wanted to welcome all of you to Christ Central. If you walked in uh, as we've been worshiping, and uh, if you didn't know, for the past seven weeks, we have been in a series on the seven deadly sins. And this morning, we are going to finish our series by looking at the sin of sloth. Uh, and uh, our first week in this series, I started by talking about how excited I was about this series because I was hoping and praying that it would take us all into the examination room of our own hearts, that it would give us a diagnostic tool to see how and where our hearts go astray, and, and pray, and I still pray that uh, as we've looked at these seven sins, that they would not just help us examine our hearts, but they would lead us into deeper spiritual transformation as we see how Jesus deals with our sin, heals us of our sin, and each week we've been given spiritual practices that we've been encouraging you to put into your, into your life to make a rhythm so that spiritual transformation uh, can happen. Uh, and we've said throughout this series that all seven of these sins apply to every single one of us, uh, that no person here is immune to any one of these sins, and, uh, and that is true uh, for the sin of sloth this morning, uh, though I know some of you may be already thinking, like you have with some of the other seven, that this one just doesn't apply to me. Uh, and I want to tell you, yes, it does. <laughs> it does, because this sin of the seven might have been the one that hit me the hardest and convicted my heart the deepest. And so I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's Word to us this morning, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 18. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Isaiah 40 tells us, The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let me pray. God, I ask that you would come now by your spirit and speak to us. Wake us up out of our slumber, our spiritual slumber. Wake us up out of our boredom. Wake us up out of our self-obsession. Wake us up to a God who is worthy to, to live for, to a God who redeems and heals, to a God who is abounding in love and grace to us this morning. Help us to hear from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, O oh God, be acceptable and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, if, if we all loaded up into buses this morning right after church, uh, we may have a, a, a slim crowd because it's raining outside, but if we had buses and we were all going to head to the zoo in Asheboro, I would bet that none of you would rush to first see the animal that we call the sloth. The sloth, it's a strange animal. Two-thirds of its body weight comes from the content of their stomach. Their breeding is often delayed because 
They can't be bothered to move around to find a mate. They sleep 15 to 18 hours a day. And this is the picture that we often think of as depictive of sloth. We think sloth is being lazy, laying around all day, sleeping, eating. We equate sloth and laziness, which is why many of you, when I said we're looking at sloth this morning, thought that it it would have no application in your life. But if we look further into the animal, the sloth, I believe we see something more profound that gets at the true definition of sloth. And it's seen in how the sloth treats its young. Infant sloths normally cling to their mother's fur as they're up in the tree, and occasionally they'll fall off. Uh, But sloths are very sturdily built. Very few die from the fall out of the tree, but in some cases they die from the fall indirectly because their mothers sometimes prove unwilling to leave the safety of the tree to retrieve their child. A mother who is unwilling to climb down from a tree to rescue her child. That's the picture I want you to keep in your mind as we think about sloth this morning. The first thing we're going to look and see about sloth is the heart of sloth. Now, I've already said this, but our society thinks sloth, and we equate it with laziness, right? It's, it's sitting around eating potato chips, watching TV, episode after episode, which can, for some of us sounds like heaven, uh, but uh, that's what we think of, laziness. But Evagrius, who was an early church father in the fourth century, combined the sins of apathy and, to, and despair into what we now call sloth. The Greek word used is sedia, which means no care or it just doesn't matter. It's the belief that nothing matters. See, the early church did not define sloth as laziness or a, an inactivity to do things, but rather it's a laziness to love. It's a laziness to love. Sloth has always been a heart issue. Right? It's like the sloth in the tree who sees their young fall and there's an unwillingness to move in love. It's a view of life and a posture of the heart where nothing matters. The definition of sloth that Rebecca de Young gives is that sloth is the resistance to love's demands. The resistance to love's demands. I, I like that. You're going to see why as we continue. See, love is the heart of Christianity. God created the world And it was a world where humanity experienced his divine love. And and humanity was called to love one another. Adam and Eve knew love like none of us have experienced before. But then sin and darkness entered into the world and fellowship that we had with the divine love was broken. And our love for one another was greatly affected where now instead of love, hate and discord and strife would reign. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son to come and die, and the son loved us so much that he did die. There's no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life. And now the Lord calls us to love one another and to love the world with the the love we've received from him. See, as Christians who trust and believe in Jesus, if you're a Christian this morning, we have been given a new identity no longer identified by our sin, but now redeemed by his love. We are his children who've been adopted, and we're given a mission. Our mission is to love our neighbor and to love the world. And sloth strikes at the heart of Christianity. 
because sloth is a resistance to live out this identity as a loved and accepted child of God, and it's a resistance to live out this mission of loving with the love we received. Sloth really is just spiritual dejection. Sloth has given up on the pursuit of anything larger than ourselves. Sloth doesn't care about love. Sloth cares about self. The heart of sloth really is that there's living with no heart, with no love outside of self. So let's look secondly, we've looked at the heart of sloth, let's look secondly at the symptoms of sloth. I want to start by telling you a short joke. What does a sluggard, a workaholic, and a zombie have in common? Sluggard, workaholic, and a zombie. Not a trick joke. Sloth. (laughs) Sloth. Sluggard, workaholic, zombie. Those are the three symptoms that Tony Reiki talks about, and that's what we're going to look at. The first, the sluggard. The book of Proverbs uses the word sluggard to describe sloth. Go to the ant, the proverb says. O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. An ant does not need to be reminded to be diligent, to work hard, or to gather food. The ant's nature is to diligently work hard. The sluggard, on the other hand, needs to be prodded and poked into movement, constantly reminded about the value of diligence and work. Now, the sluggard is probably what most of us quickly think of when we think about sloth. Someone who doesn't work hard, someone who sits around. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12, the passage I just read, Paul writes to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. See, the sluggard is the person who looks to get out of work. It's the person who shirks their responsibility, the person who finds themselves dependent on other people. Now, not because of rough circumstances or things that have happened, but they are dependent rather because they find it easier and more comfortable to allow others to provide for their needs rather than to work hard and provide for themselves. The the sluggard is all about comfort and ease, and they relate to people in view of what can people do for me rather than what can I do for them. See, the failure of sloth as a sluggard is the failure to love your neighbor. Think about this. It is extremely selfish if you fail to work hard at your job, if you drop your responsibilities, if you are only thinking about your comfort and ease, because when you do that, you are affecting other people in your work. You're not actually loving them at all because they're going to have to pick up the slack, right? If you're only concerned about yourself and you're not concerned about others, others are going to have to pick up your slack when you shirk your responsibilities. They're going to have to make up for it. That's a failure to love your neighbor. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says, live quietly, work hard, walk properly before outsiders. I deeply believe that Christians should be some of the hardest workers who do the best work. It is a witness to those who are out, those who are watching how Christians live. Working hard and diligently is some of the best evangelism that Christians can do. It's loving your neighbor by doing your job well. Now, I know there are a number of you right now thinking, I don't have that problem. 
That's why I think sloths don't. I'm not a sluggard, right? I get up at 5.30 a.m. I, I work until 8 p.m. I pull late-nighters if I need to. I respond to email immediately. I, I return phone calls quickly, which is why the second symptom of sloth hit me, the workaholic. Not just a sluggard, but the workaholic. Now, I'm not one who's prone to sit around and do nothing. <laughs> I'm, I'm prone to work pretty hard, uh, work too much. I'm prone to be a workaholic, you can ask my wife, and sometimes that's applauded. <laughs> You're a workaholic? That's like the sin everybody wants to confess. I work too much, right? So everybody's like, yeah, that's not that bad. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, it is, it is deeply, uh, deeply um, convicting to me. Uh, see, this form of sloth is just as much, uh, is, is just as deep as that of being a sluggard, because the definition of sloth is not being lazy about work, but it's being lazy about love. Remember, it's a resistance to love's demands. Where the sluggard can be apathetic about life and the call to love, the workaholic can escape the call to love by using their work. Perhaps you grew up in a family that pushed you to achieve and to excel, and so working hard is what you were born to do. It comes natural. Some of you maybe as Christians have begun to understand that vocation is very important in the kingdom of God and that vocation has value in God's mission. And it is so easy to allow these things and to use work as an escape and to justify our workaholism. There are two entrapments, many for the workaholic, but I want to mention two. The first is that work often requires less of us than relationships at home or in our community requires less of us. There have been many times that I've been with my family and I start thinking about all the work that I have to do. And I get antsy to do my work. And I can often justify my work because it's church work, right? Doing, I'm doing ministry of the Lord, right? And here's the reality. I can do emails. I can knock out to-dos. I can even write sermons. And I can feel pretty good about myself. And I feel like I've accomplished much. But when I'm at home with Rachel and our son Henry, and the demands of my attention, and the demands of my care, they never end. They're constant. So it feels like I'm getting nowhere. See, loving is much more difficult than working at times. Even when you think about community, when I meet with people as a pastor, and I hear about sin, struggle, personal hurt, and pain, this requires much more of me than going to the store to buy something for the church, or writing emails, or, or doing to-dos. When I meet with people, some of you in this church, there may never be tangible progress that I see in the life of a person. You can't check off a relationship, right? It's dynamic, and this requires love, and it can be difficult. So do you use work to avoid the demands of love at home or in your community? Relationships require much more of us than our work often does. Here's a second entrapment. Work can often be more about you than it is about others. So working hard is often driven by a desire to succeed or to be productive or efficient. You can pursue your work to be recognized and for personal advancement. But work in the kingdom of God is not about a means to showcase yourself. It's a means to support others and to meet other people's needs. You see, the workaholic who works himself ragged to prove himself or herself superior to their neighbor 
or to have more stuff than their neighbor is playing the sloth just as much as the person who's eating potato chips watching TV all day long. Because sloth is self-centered. Living with no care for others, it's a failure to love. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-10 is written. Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And I urge you to do this more and more. If you are not cultivating love within your home or love within your community because you're too busy, because work is just crazy right now, though I do know there are seasons where work is busier than others, But if this becomes routine, and if you find yourself saying that over and over, I'm here to tell you that you are guilty, as I often am, of sloth. You're being lazy to love, and you're escaping with your work. Here's the third symptom of sloth. Not just a slugger, not just a workaholic, but the zombie. The zombie. We were talking with some people Thursday night at the bonfire about zombie movies and zombie TVs. That's not my thing. It's some of of y'all's things, maybe. But when I say zombie... All of you imagine something, and, and it's most likely a dead person who's alive, right? a dead person living, a dead person going through the motions of life. Being a zombie in the way that I'm talking about sloth this morning is a person who has lost the taste for what is truly satisfying, and they're just going through the motions. And I believe this is much of our culture today. Zombies are people who are bored with life. Bored with God. And boredom can be identified by our habitual addiction to distraction. Right? We can be in constant need of something new to pique our interest. A new hobby, a new vacation that we might go on, a new car, a new house, the latest technology, the newest, latest blog to read. But after a while, our interest fades and we need something new again because we're distracted. Pastor theologian Will Willimon said this, He said, we live in an age of distraction, of massive attention deficit disorder. Failing to have our attention grabbed by anything of lasting value, our eyes and our minds wander, restlessly roving, failing to alight in anything worth having. And then he says, I'm no better than my congregation. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. It is a passage about the coming of the Lord Jesus, about those who have already died and who will be resurrected from the grave. The Lord will descend, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet will call, the dead in Christ will rise. That passage invokes our imagination. All of you can see that. It gives us a vision and a picture of the great and glorious return of Christ. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that the love of God is worth living for. That we are part of something much bigger than ourselves. We're part of a kingdom that is far from boring, far from ordinary. It is a kingdom that should captivate our hearts and our imaginations and then cause us to truly live. Are you bored with God? Are you bored with living the Christian life? Are you constantly looking for a new thing that will distract you? See, we can live like a sluggard or the workaholic or the zombie. All three are symptoms of sloth. Evagrius, again, in the 4th century, he wrote on the characteristics and the warning signs of sloth. And then Glenn Davis, who was a campus ministry worker at Stanford, took them and made cultural adjustments to them. And this is what Davis came up with. Characteristics of warning signs of sloth. One, you get immediately bored with spiritual activity. 
Two, your prayer empties. Three, you read the Bible like you do a phone book. Four, when you fight with friends, you don't work it out. You get new ones because it's easier. Five, you think you can worship God anywhere. Who needs other people? It's important for us to understand that the opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy and indifference. Sloth is the resistance to love's demands. That's the symptoms. Let's look lastly, not just the heart, not just the symptoms, but the healing for sloth. So a reminder, sloth is a sin of identity and mission, right? Forgetting who we are and resisting living out what we're called to li- how we're called to live as Christians. Marriage is one of the most prominent descriptions of the Christian life in Scripture. And I want you to think about marriage. Single, married, you all understand what marriage uh, means. But let me, let me give you this description. When Rachel and I got married, my identity and Rachel's identity changed, right? I was no longer just me. It was us. We're now the Masons. And marriage doesn't come easy. There's hard work required. I daily can make the choice to love my wife and to love my son or shirk my responsibility and my call to love them. I can escape loving them by running to work or other things that can validate me. I can grow cold and bored in our marriage and I can look to other things to excite me. Or I can remember each day that when I made a vow and I entered into the covenant of marriage, my identity changed. And I vowed to love Rachel no matter what comes. And that will be hard at times, dare I say, work. I vowed to put her first, not my wants, but nor my desires or my career, but I vowed to care for her, cherish her, honor her, in other words, to be enamored by her, to not get bored with her. Being a Christian is much the same way. If you trust Jesus, you've been given a new identity as a Christian, son and daughter fully loved. And each day, you can choose to live in this identity and, dare I say, do the work that is needed to care for your relationship with God. Each day, you can have excuses about why other things are more important and more pressing than loving God and loving others. You can live with a habitual addiction to distraction. You can get bored with God, bored with His beauty and His glory, and settle for the things of this world. So let me give you some remedies to this disease of the soul. That's what it is. It's a disease of the soul. Here are some remedies. Place. Stability of place. See, sloth looks for an easy way out. Love flourishes in a context of daily action, lasting commitment in one place over a long period of time. One of the greatest remedies to sloth is to stay the course and to resist the urge to get out or to give up. It's to persevere. And I think staying in one place is extremely healthy and is riveting to sloth, which looks to escape, to avoid place. That's kind of a general remedy. Here's the second one, neighbor. Look to love your neighbor. This is the remedy for the sluggard. Pray that God would give you a mindfulness for others. In your workplace, as you go to work, look for ways to love other people and, and to see how your work impacts them. Look for ways to love your neighbor, those that God has placed around you. Look for ways to love your own family. It's much easier to allow life to revolve around you and your comfort and your ease than to move out in love. How might you do that with your neighbor or with a co-worker or a student 
right? How could you do that? Here's the third remedy, church. Sabbath worship. Here's, this is a remedy for the workaholic. I want to encourage all of you here to really practice Sabbath worship. Practicing setting aside Sunday as a day of worship and make it a priority. It is easy, easy to allow travel or work or things at home that need to get done to block you from coming into this place on a Sunday morning or churches that are back at your, in your home city. For walk, workaholics, Sunday worship is actually one of the best things that we can do. It makes us stop. There's a call to rest in the Lord, and it makes us face other Christian brothers and sisters that maybe we've been too busy for, or we've possibly been avoiding. So place, neighbor, church. Here's the last one. God and imagination. This is the remedy for the zombie. I want to encourage all of you to practice cultivating a spiritual imagination. Now, that may sound weird to some of you. Cultivate an imagination that focuses on God. Cultivate a heart and imagination that, that lifts you out of yourself to experience of God of abounding beauty and abounding love and grace. Now, when I say imagination, I don't mean, I don't mean think of some fairy tale land in this made-up place. I mean cultivate an imagination of God that is grounded in Scripture and which God says is real and true of Himself. I, I heard one pastor say, imagination is like what you experience when I'm about to tell you, imagine the face of your grandmother. All of you can imagine the face of your grandmother and experience something when I say imagine your grandmother. There's something very true and real. Imagination, spiritual imagination, is what will pull you out of your boredom. It will pull you out of reading the Bible like a phone book. So cultivate spiritual imaginations. In other words, cultivate cosmic enchantment. Read scripture and pray with curiosity. Read poetry. Listen to music. Take a walk in the woods. Take up gardening. Take up bird watching. Take up something that pulls you out of yourself. Because it's really hard to get bored when we stop and we behold a God who rules over a world filled with extraordinary beauty and grace. Practicing these things that I just mentioned will create a hunger for God. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, the sloth is gripped with apathy and avoidance. But when God heals us of sloth, we become a people who hunger for him. We have an appetite to taste and to see his goodness and to experience his love and his grace. And it's his love for us and our faith in him that roots us in our identity as sons and daughters. And then it fuels us and it empowers us to live on mission, to love our neighbor and to love this world. Jesus, the perfect son of God, who was not just willing but wanted to meet the demands of love, the love of his father and the love of us, his people. Jesus lived out his identity as the sent son of God who would love the world by giving his life away. He didn't shirk his responsibilities, nor did he look to escape, but rather he loved his father and he loved us with a fierce love. And in Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus' imagination was filled with joy the joy he would bring his father, the joy he would receive, the joy that he would bring into the world when salvation would be ushered in. So as we trust Jesus, 
He gives us something through his life, death, resurrection, and promised return that is worth being excited about, that is worth working hard to cultivate day in and day out like a marriage, a relationship with God that is filled with love and grace that then motivates us to work diligently and to grow with him and with others and to be enamored 